Welcome to Callings, a podcast of NetView, the network for vocation in undergraduate education, featuring conversations on college, career, and a life well lived. I'm Erin Van Lanningham. And I'm Hannah Schell. And we invite you to explore with us and our guests the process of discovering one's vocation. We approach the subject with eagerness and humility and the recognition that a diversity of viewpoints, religious and secular, influence how we understand vocation. Through these conversations, we hope to offer listeners better ways to understand how discerning one's purpose and connection with others is central to a meaningful life. Our guest today is Jonathan Malesic, a writer and teacher whose recent book, The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives, published by the University of California Press in 2022, addresses important questions for those who are interested in vocational exploration. No stranger to the academic life, John was a tenured religion professor before becoming a full-time writer. His work has appeared in various venues, ranging from the New York Times and the Washington Post to Commonweal, the Chronicle of Higher Education, and the Hedgehog Review. John has also contributed to NetView's blog, Vocation Matters. John holds a PhD in Religious Studies from the University of Virginia. We are delighted to talk with him today, in part because of his wide-ranging experience in thinking about vocation and the limits and complexities of our work identities and beyond. John, welcome to Callings. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So we like to always begin uh, hearing about people's own vocational journey. And you you start your book and you've you know shared in a lot of your writing about your experience, your own experience of burnout. Um, and so that part of the story uh, people know. Uh, but I wonder if you'd take us back to when you first began having an inclination of what you wanted to do with your life, maybe even what did you want what did you want to do when you were a child? Was there ever sort of a moment of epiphany? I mean, you talk about sort of wanting to live the life of these great professors that you had. Um, and I'm curious to hear if you think of yourself as having a calling to teaching and I don't, what the right verb tense even that of that would be now. So how about your own vocational journey? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you asked uh, about Going back even before when I decided that I wanted to be a college religion professor, because there's a that uh, occurred, you know, I felt that attraction, if if not calling, we can, you know, maybe debate whether it was a calling or not. Uh, but yeah, I, I felt that when probably like my second year in college, when, after I took my first college religion classes. Uh, I went into college as a physics major, um, but I went to a religious college. I went to the Catholic University of America, and uh, every student had to take four courses in religion, four courses in philosophy. I had no idea what to expect. Uh, and in fact, when I was in high school, I hated my religion classes. It was <laughs> religion and health were the worst. Uh, and then I, I made my career out of one of those. But if you go back even further, when I was in high school, I was really interested in math and science. Uh, I I was on the math team, uh, in fact. Uh, and I, you know, what does a kid who's interested in math and science do uh, when he or she grows up? And the answer that seemed like the right answer at the time was engineering. So I applied entirely to engineering schools for college. Uh, and then I, I, did the, I switched to physics after reading a book uh, by Gary Zukav. This was before he became one of Oprah's gurus. But Zukav wrote this great book called The Dancing Wu-Li Masters. And I read it the summer before college. And it's, it's about the connection between spirituality and uh, modern physics. And it totally opened my eyes to how much really interesting stuff was going on in physics at the time. 
And so I, I, I went on this different track, uh, and then I went on yet another different track, uh, after I started taking my religion classes. So, and I, in, in preparing for this conversation, I thought about my, uh, how my, my vocation has really shifted. And, you know, when, during my twenties, I was almost entirely in school that whole time. Uh, and then I started, my job as a theology professor at a small Catholic college when I was 30 and I quit when I was 40. And so my forties have been yet another vocational shift towards primarily writing though. I still also teach part-time. So as we imagine these different seasons of work or seasons of vocation, however we want to think about this, I want to um, turn the conversation to your new book, The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. And in it, you draw out some important distinctions about the various promises of work. Um, You talk about dignity, character, and purpose. You also talk about work saints and work martyrs, and that work promises to give us self-fulfillment in some ways, um, the ways that we think about it in our culture. Um, You suggest that all of those things make it difficult for us to leave work or leave particular jobs and contribute to burnout. Um, Can you unpack some of that for us? Yeah, the those those promises, those are our ideals that we bring to work. And those are broadly shared ideals in North American society and not only, but you know, throughout the world. Uh and those ideals can they they, they hold out tremendous promise. You know, we all want dignity, we all want to build or prove our character. Uh, parents and teachers tell their children or their students, you know, work will build character. Um, and we want, we want purpose. We want to feel that our work has some significance beyond ourselves. And this is, I think, often where vocation language comes in. The problem <laughs> is that that promise is very often not fulfilled in the working culture of the United States and many other you know, wealthy uh, post-industrial countries. We, our, our work often, we, we go to work seeking dignity, but many workers uh, work in undignified conditions where they might not even be able to go to the bathroom uh, uh, while they're on the clock. We go seeking character, but often just as work can form character, it can as easily deform character. It depends on what you do at work. And in, in, in an academic context, you think about how work might form our character and make us impatient or it can make us prideful. Uh, we, you know, chase prestige and status very much. Uh, and it can make us envious. Um, my goodness. I mean, that's perhaps the, the greatest vice that I am susceptible to, uh, in my career, uh, as, as an academic and as a writer. So character, you know, doesn't always pan out either. And then there's the question of purpose. The work that we do often seems pointless. And this is a real problem when it comes to burnout. You know, when I was undergoing burnout, I felt like my students were learning nothing from me. I felt like my effort in the classroom was a total waste. I had gone through all these years of graduate school, all this training. I was putting in all this work to prepare for class. And then I just saw the the blank disinterest of the students in the classroom. And what I've been talking about in, in talking about the ideals for work and the reality, when that gap between them grows that's when we are ripe for the experience of burnout. Burnout is that experience of being stretched between your ideals for work and the reality of your job. And if you're stretched long enough, then you feel the exhaustion, the cynicism, and the the sense of ineffectiveness that are characteristic of burnout. I have to admit, John, when I was reading, especially your descriptions of your students' behavior. Well, the case of plagiarism, right, as an early instance 
that just sort of ensnared you. And then what you just described as the blank faces and just, you know, and you had developed all these tricks over the years. I definitely recognized myself in those descriptions. I mean, I recognized myself as a committed teacher. I'm just going to keep trying. I'm just going to like, you know, pull out all the stops. And then also just a real disappointment in students and losing sleep over cases of plagiarism. And I also recognized my own students in that. But as a reader, my reaction was to want to blame the students. Yeah, this is the problem with this generation of students, right? And so, but then, of course, I was aware that I'm reading a book about burnout and that you're sort of sharing this as a precursor to this major kind of change that you made. And so, I don't know. Do you want to, do you want to speak to that? Cause I, 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 I feel like what you're describing there, surely in some way, the students are to blame for some of what you were describing. <laughs> it was very oh, generous, yeah, totally. your description, right? <laughs> that like, no, this is part of your own burnout. <laughs> so, Yes, I, I am very comfortable blaming <laughs> the students in part uh, for my burnout. Though I should, I should be quick to add that there, you think about the incentives that students have and that they're responding to. And the way that education, higher education is set up in the United States, and again, not only the United States, it's more or less everywhere, is that, you know, they're, the students, they have to do a whole lot of things they don't want to do. Mm. And the goal of higher education is pretty abstract. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, they, they want to concretize it. You know, what my goal is to get a degree. My goal is to get a job. My goal is to pass this course. And so what it, what's going to get me through to that goal with the least effort? Because, as you know, I mean, the, the amount of things that the students have pressing on them, the amount of demands is, is tremendous. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I sort of, I mean, on the flip side, I, I also wonder how, you know, to recognize students' burnout and and the sort of ways in which that's also playing in right to these to the circumstance where um you know they're seeking purpose and dignity in this work and wondering and nobody's paying any attention to what i'm doing as a student i don't know mm. yeah. yeah well and i think that what this uh underscores is the way that your burnout and my burnout are connected. You know, mm-hmm. my burnout and mm-hmm. students' burnout, my burnout yeah. and administrators' burnout. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very easy. Faculty uh, love to blame administration for, you know, their their problems. And not without reason many times. But, you know, faculty who are, are may often be very quick to say, ah, you know, Dean so-and-so is really making my life difficult. Dean so-and-so is under pressure as well and, and may be making your life difficult because someone else is making their life difficult, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that the, you know, the, the problem of burnout is that that also signals how the problem of burnout is primarily institutional and cultural. You know, burnout is not a thing that goes wrong inside of you. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, heartburn or something like that where mm-hmm. something has gone wrong inside of you. It's it's something that has gone wrong in an entire institution and I would argue in an entire culture. Mm-hmm. And it grows out of interpersonal relationships. I mean, work is a social relationship. And... When in that relationship, our ideals for work are consistently not met, we burn out. But if if I am burning out, there's a good chance that the person in the next office over is burning out and possibly the person one step higher or lower in the org chart is also burning out. the back half of the book where you are talking a lot about solutions or models that we can turn to, um, especially from people or communities on the fringes. 
from which you you name a few different um, uh, you know communities or people in the book. Can you talk about what uh, specifically these examples provide that is missing from the ways we think about or experience work? Yeah. So the 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 premise uh, is that we experience burnout at such tremendous rates because we live in a burnout culture. Burnout is just kind of built into our societies. And so to look for alternatives, I think you got to look outside the mainstream. Uh, you have to look at, look for people and communities and workplaces that are at least challenging the central assumptions of our burnout culture. And among those assumptions is the idea that your highest purpose is to work. Your role in society is to work. What makes you a good person is how hard you work. So at minimum, I wanted to find people in places that challenge those assumptions and ideally ones that have very different assumptions about what human value and purpose is like. And so the, there's a, one of the places that I went looking is Benedictine monasteries and uh, the one one of the monasteries that I went to visit uh, is the Monastery of Christ in the Desert in northern New Mexico, and you you know that you're leaving the mainstream of American society just trying to get to the mon- to the monastery <laughs> because you go up the highway north of Santa Fe and you turn off of the highway onto a dirt forest service road and you take that road which is very pitted it is very windy it runs right next to uh, a river on you know so occasionally steep cliffs uh and it runs for about 13 miles and it takes it took me the better part of an hour just to get to the monastery which is in the middle of this just stunningly beautiful canyon uh along the rio chama and uh, needless to say, the monks are off of the electrical grid, being so far out. They generate their own electricity. They pump their own water. Uh, they connect to the wider world via a satellite. Uh, and they, they, they live as closely as they can to the letter of St. Benedict's Rule, which was written in 530. So they're trying to live in the 21st century according to a 6th century rule. And part of the way they do that is, you know, they, you know, for the Benedictines uh, at, at this monastery and, and other Benedictine communities, of course, the communal prayer is the, the focus of their day. And they have to work, they have to sustain themselves, but they only work about three or four hours a day. Uh, they gather for, you know, prayer just before their work period at nine o'clock and then they go and they do their work. And then at 1240, the chapel bell rings and they come back for another period of prayer. And I asked one of the monks who had been a defense attorney in his, his life prior to joining the monastery. So this is someone who knew burnout culture perfectly well. Said, what do you do when you when the bell rings and it feels like your work is undone? I mean, this is an experience that many workers have. It's like, ah, I gotta pick up the kids, or it's five o'clock, or you know, whatever. I have this other obligation, but my work is undone. And he looked at me and said, You get over it. <laughs> and that struck me. Not just as good advice, but I mean, it struck me as a spiritual practice, Mm. you know, like getting over it. It it should be like on par with meditation and, you Mm. know, works of mercy or whatever, uh, I think, in our spiritual practice. Yeah, that's so interesting. You're talking about it in terms of a a practice. I, um, I have read about the Benedictines and other other places. I'm sure you're familiar with Kathleen Norris's The Cloister Walk. And um, you also talk about uh, the community in Collegeville, Minnesota, at St. John's Abbey. And I, um, I, I did 
I had pulled out a, a part of the book to to ask you to respond to about the monks at, at Christ in the Desert. And you you write really beautifully about uh, some of their other practices uh, at the close of chapter seven of the book. And you're describing a ritual of existing together in the community. Um, and they bow to each other seven times a day um, at the end of, of their um prayers. And you write about the right to belong, regardless of the work that they do. And I wondered if you could say more about what it means about work um, and and what it means to belong, and then what that might even say about vocation. (laughs) Yeah, I think that in American society, you belong, this is, this is dignity, right? You belong, you matter, only if you have paid employment. How do I know that this is true? Go to any public protest. 100% of the time, there's going to be someone at some point across the street shouting, get a job. So that person is implicitly claiming that your voice only counts if you work for pay. Mm. If you work not for pay, that doesn't count. Uh, If you don't work at all, that doesn't count. If you have a disability that prevents you from work, you are in violation of this implicit, uh, I don't know, social contract, I guess is sort of what it is. Um, And I think that if you go to any Benedictine community, you see that that social contract is is false. It's that social contract is not the assumption. Uh, Benedict says to treat all visitors as if to greet all visitors as if you're greeting Christ, and so that's the Benedictine charism of hospitality, which is you know you you will find in any Benedictine community uh, that you visit, and I think that within the community, yeah, there's there are these rituals of honoring the dignity of each other that is built into the prayer. And I think it's also built into the the way that they understand uh, each other's role. Um, you know, monks and, and sisters, they pledge their lives to their community. And it's it's like stability of life means... You pledge yourself to a specific community for life. Uh, you belong there with very few, very few opportunities to, to change your community. Uh, it does happen, but you belong there and you vow to remain with that community and that community vows to support you for the rest of your life. And so everyone has, everyone belongs. Everyone has a role. Um, the the sisters uh, at St. Benedict's Monastery in St. Joseph, Minnesota, uh, many of the sisters from that community actually live in sort of a retirement convent uh, in a different city, St. Cloud. Every city in that area is named after a saint. <laughs> um, and what some of the sisters do who are, you know, they're not in active ministry. They're not working very diligently, but they are praying and a sister brings them a list of prayers every week saying, these are the prayers that have come in. Um, and the community relies on, you know, these elderly and infirm sisters to, pick up some of the the burden of of prayer that that comes in. I mean, this is it's it's an important ministry. They have something to contribute uh at all stages of life. Um you know, they're they're not considered used up uh once they retire and and I think that that's that's equally a profound statement of what dignity what it means when we honor the 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 inherent dignity of every human being as a creature of God. That example, and I know you talk about Thoreau, and you talk about some other artist figures who are 
particularly on the margins. And I'm trying to imagine talking with my students or, um, you know, with my, my friends about this particular model. And I find it very appealing. And I think it challenges a lot of assumptions about how my work is connected to your work and, you know, the sort of value added that everybody, you know, gets when we think about those connections. But, um, you know, how do we, how do we bridge this gap between the sort of center in the margins or the fringes, um, in the ways that we talk about, um, work and, you know, giving space for acknowledging burnout and different kinds of work and these kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, I think that we, we need to learn from, you know, those who have different assumptions, uh, and you don't necessarily have to go to, you know, the desert, uh, in order to find those people. I mean, you know, people living with different assumptions are, are all around us and, uh, often overlooked. Yeah. So, I mean, I, uh, I mentioned a, a nonprofit here in Dallas, Texas, where honoring each employee is built into their, um, uh, their staff meeting. So they have this, they have a ritual uh, called you better recognize in each of their staff meetings where everyone has an opportunity. And there's about 160 staff members. Uh, everyone has an opportunity to recognize someone who did anything, anything big or small uh, mm. to make the job easier or to accomplish an important goal. And, you know, so I take like from those organizations, you know, both Benedictine communities and organizations like this nonprofit, which is called City Square, workplaces and other communities can, I think, take inspiration for how to construct uh, the, the relationships within. And I also look at a handful of individuals. So I look at, you know, a couple of artists, uh, Patricia Nordine and Erica Mena. Uh, Erica lives in Finland, uh, though is is a you know American uh, artist, and uh, Patricia you know li- lives here in the states. And both of them had to rethink their uh, their self understanding after chronic illness made it impossible to work full time. Uh, so. Erica, um, when I spoke to them, was able to work about an hour or maybe two uh, each day due to a chronic illness. And occasionally, Erica can't work much at all. And so they've had to practice a kind of self-compassion in order to recognize, well, that's fine. This is not what makes me valuable, is the amount of, of work I can do other things that make me valuable. Um, And likewise with uh, Patricia, Patricia has found community, uh, you know, elsewhere and particularly in, in online artists communities. And Patricia has also had to think of her worth as a person uh, very different, very differently due to, you know, chronic illness. John, I've really been looking forward to the chance to talk to you about your topic, burnout, and our topic, vocation, and putting them alongside each other. Uh, just in reading some of your early essays uh, prior to the book, and then you wrote uh, for Vocation Matters blog, um, there's a way in which what you're saying about burnout and burnout culture uh, indicts <laughs> this category that is central to NetView vocation, right? And and sort of how it uh, perpetuates some of the things that you're talking about. So in, in your blog piece uh, at Vocation Matters, you wrote, a strong sense of vocation isn't enough to prevent burnout because burnout isn't a failure of vocation. It's a disease that festers in the gap between your vocation and your job. 
the more the demands and rewards of your job diverge from the work that you're called to do, the more likely it is you'll burn out. And just your your work has been sort of, you know, helpfully <laughs> provoking to me because, and I think I still hang on to this idea that no, burnout is really the, it's the other side of vocation. And so when that's beginning to happen, and I guess I'm thinking about this at an individual level, what's most needed, the antidote is good vocational discernment, sort of revisiting, maybe visiting for the first time, trying to get to that sense of what's your calling. And if you can get back to that, that will fix whatever is, you know, express, being expressed as burnout. But I, I take your, uh, your project to be saying, no, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Um, and also in a way, also invite, indicting vocation that there's a problem with how much we have invested in this idea of calling. So anyway, will you, will you speak to that, put sort of burnout alongside vocation and help us out? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, and I can, uh, you know, maybe for me, the easiest place to start is by talking about my own experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if anyone brought a sense of vocation to his job, or if anyone pursued work as a calling, it was me. And I know that this is true for many listeners. Uh, I had a picture in my head of what I wanted to do, and it it felt like a noble purpose. It seemed like that, you know, that fit between uh, my deepest longing and the world's deepest need, right? And it was to be a theology professor at a small Catholic liberal arts college. I got it. I got exactly what I wanted and it nearly ruined my life. Um, and the reason is, you know, per- perhaps, I mean, we can, yeah, this would be, maybe we can, we can, we can argue about this a little um, because perhaps I don't fully understand, you know, the, the idea of vocation, but uh yeah, I mean, I thought that I was doing what I was meant to do, and I brought a lot of passion to it, uh, and I worked really hard, and I loved, you know, trying to connect with and inspire the students, and, and often it worked. Uh, you know, certainly, I mean, I don't want to say that, that, it, that it, you know, never worked or anything like that, um, nor should I, you know, gloss over the fact that um, you know, as, uh, as, you know, academics know, you know, yeah, you follow the call, uh, and it leads you, it can lead you to, um, yeah, it's like being, I mean, in a way it's like, uh, being in, you know, almost like in the military or something or some other kind of mm. like, uh, you know, line of work where you don't get to pick where you live, you know, someone else picks for you. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so, you know, if the job is in, if the job is in Northeast Pennsylvania, if the job is in North Texas, if the job is in North Dakota, you know, or, or wherever, like you go, um, and you have to figure out how to live in that community. Often that works out extraordinarily well, but often also it doesn't. Um, and yeah, I mean, the fact is that no, no vocation, I think, can bridge that gap between ideal and reality on its own. No vocation mm-hmm. can make up for the fact that your task this weekend is to grade 60 papers in which every single mistake that in which <laughs> you see your own mistakes echoed in the, in the, the 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 errors that the students are making you're like ah i taught i taught a and every paper is doing not a <laughs> um and you know vocation can't uh cover for the fact that salaries have been frozen for 4 years or you have to teach an overload or your relationship with your chair is bad. I mean, 
I think that in in those cases, vocation can often keep you in a situation mm-hmm. that is really bad for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a a question about you know how sometimes I mean the the language of vocation can be misapplied or you know used in a way that yeah, there's guilt involved and you're you're trying to sort of compensate in ways that are not healthy um for for you or for the students or for the institution and um and just our our sense of of uh of purpose um can be used to to a detriment in a lot of ways yeah there was an article uh in the chronicle of higher education earlier this year um and i mean this was one where the headline did all of the work <laughs> right and the headline was something about uh mission gaslighting mm-hmm. uh and <laughs> <laughs> I'm not crazy about the term gaslighting, but I really enjoyed it in this instance where, you know, in when particularly teaching at, you know, small, precarious uh, religious institutions, mission is often a big word. Well, you know, we got to be committed to the mission and all that. And yes, absolutely. But that sense of mission, I think, is often... uh thought that you know well mission will that that's how you know you'll deal with the fact that we're cutting um retirement contributions or something like that Mm. Uh, you know faculty i know who teach at those kind of schools have a strong sense of mission and vocation and they also deserve to have the uh you know the the retirement contributions that they signed up for so in the one of the things that's really uh powerful about this book First of all, I love how you weave together just this rich history of the idea of burnout, even when that wasn't the term, right? But just going all the way back to the Desert Fathers and sort of early uh, Christian discussions about uh, vices and then into the 19th century, um, William James and uh, uh Anhedonia, or no? What was the uh, what was the great thing that everyone was sort of suffering from? Uh, oh, no. yes, that's yeah. right. Uh, and mm-hmm. and I think at one point in the book, you you sort of say it's uh, you know this is something human beings have been dealing with for a long time, right? Maybe in a slightly different vocabulary. So there's this rich kind of history of ideas and cultural history, and then more recently, just you know. Uh, even with the um, air traffic controller strike, I mean things sort of leading up to how we got to this moment. So lots, lots of different things woven together. And of course, your story is one of uh, somebody in academia, and you're very open and honest about your story. But then you've also woven in stories of people and doing all different kinds of work. So I was just, we were curious to hear about um, the reception of this book. And what you've sort of heard back, you know, either in print or just uh, what what you've received, both from inside the academy and then outside the academy, and if there's there's any difference. I mean, I, I know because you had posted something about that uh, when you were interviewed by Anderson Cooper, I think, on CNN. You know, he had this moment when he said, like, maybe I'm burnt out. You know, sort of you've got everybody confessing yeah. <laughs> that uh, they're burnt out. So anyway, but has there been any kind of the reception you've gotten from within the academy as opposed to outside of academic circles? Yeah, I think it's been pretty similar. Mm. Uh, the, and, and I'm grateful that the reception has been generally positive. Um, I do uh, notice my Amazon reviews. Uh, I probably shouldn't. There is a, an Amazon review. It's just one word. It says sucks. Uh, so, you know, um, uh, buyer beware uh, uh, regarding that. But the, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, I I wrote the book, yeah, kind of, you know, of course, being an academic, I'm not surprised that people within academia would take an interest in it. Uh, the book, of course, is published with a university press, uh, but I wrote it hoping that, yeah, you know, um, a broader audience would would be interested. And, right, I mean, I think that the, the, the things that academics face uh, that – causes 
us if I can. I mean, I still call myself an academic when it's convenient, and I don't when it's not convenient. So for now, <laughs> that's I'm just, honest. I'm going to call myself an academic. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. I mean, for us, the things that that we face that cause us to to experience burnout are not not ultimately so different from what others do. Mm. Um, we have a, a you know high ideals for our work. We put in a lot of time. And the conditions often don't measure up. And we really face, you know, precarity and, you know, the, these other things that, that so many workers do. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised that uh, both academics and non-academics seem to be yeah. taking an interest uh, in it. And, and, yeah, that the reception is mostly positive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, interestingly, like... Equally, uh, that, you know, looking at reviews, uh, I get similar and similarly positive reviews from The Bulwark, which is a kind of center-right publication, and The Baffler, which is, you know, a left-wing publication. And so (laughs) if I can kind of, if right and left are kind of both (laughs) on board with this, maybe... um, I don't know. Maybe maybe I did something right. Yeah. How many topics <laughs> don't uh, end up slicing up along the culture wars lines these days? So, well, as a academic and professor who's teaching right now, and uh, I, you know, was excited to read this book and talk with you about it because I think. You know, so many uh, faculty who who teach are you know that we're like we know what what this is we we've seen it or we've been on the edge of it or maybe we're experiencing it. Um, you know, burnout burnout's real. I I also though have had times in my life where I think work has saved me. Mm-hmm. Um, has has actually been the thing that does give me dignity, identity, purpose, all of the, what you describe as the noble lie <laughs> or um, something like that. And, and I, you know, I, I'm not sure that everybody will have that as a through line. And I wouldn't even say that, you know, I would argue that for myself, but, uh, but I can point to certain times where, yeah, that, that was the the thing that was, that was for sure, um, so you know, I I don't know if you if you want to talk about about you know people like me who who might say that. <laughs> yeah, well, and and it's it's true of me too. Uh, I think that yeah, in the book, I probably well, I mean, not even probably, I definitely emphasize the negative side of work in an effort to counteract uh, a, a very common cultural narrative that, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life <laughs> and, you know, work builds character and, you know, uh, oh, you're trying to exercise your free speech rights, we'll get a job. I mean, I'm trying to counteract all of that. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I can't deny that uh, you're, you're right, Aaron, that uh, work does... Sometimes, often, uh, you know, we can we can uh, <laughs> debate that too. Yeah, um, uh, li- live up to its promise, and I know that uh, partly from my own life. You know, and I wrote about this in um, in an essay for Vox that came out a couple months after the book did, and I, I wrote that piece because I wanted to I wanted to kind of reckon with the the positive side of work that I didn't really uh, touch upon. That wasn't the focus of the book. And, you know, in my own life, uh, so when I made this big vocational switch from full-time work as a tenured professor, where during the academic year, my time is fairly structured, um, and I, I always have a deadline, I always have someone counting on me to do a thing, to becoming a freelance writer when my when my work was totally unstructured, I often had no one counting on me, and I had no one would notice if I just kind of stopped writing forever. You know, no one would no one would know the difference. Um, and that that became its own. I, you know, certainly wasn't burnout. It was some other. I would say I was afflicted with acedia. In fact, um, 
but it was a it was a bad feeling and it was bad enough that I knew what I needed to do was get a job. Uh, and so I, that's when I started teaching uh, first year writing part time. Uh, and what the reason I did that is because I really want I wanted some structure. I wanted to have to go to a specific place at a specific time where I would meet people who were counting on me to do something and to exercise my skills and my talents and my effort. And it was, it was great. It, it, it definitely, uh, it helped. Uh, and you know, that doesn't mean I want to dive back into full-time teaching, but the part-time it, it, it engages me with society in a way that freelance writing just at my desk all day doesn't. In fact, I wouldn't spend all day at my desk. I would just lie on the couch for a lot of that time because I didn't know what to do with myself. Plus, am I allowed to say teaching first year writing, let's just say, is important, noble work. <laughs> and thank you and kudos yes. Yes, to all of you who do it. Yes, it <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's hard. It's yeah. really hard. So, John, I was interested to hear about, because um, just going back to the fact that your, you know, your PhD is in religious studies and um, just knowing that there are certain philosophers and theologians that are important to you. Uh, but, you know, when I scan the notes on the book, it, that's not obvious. Somebody would have to sort of have read your earlier things. But what, what thinkers, and maybe these are philosophers or theologians, maybe it's uh, literary figures, just in general, inform your thinking whenever you take on a topic, maybe who was, you know, your pantheon or in the back of your mind when you were working on the subject of burnout. Can you give us a sense of that? Yeah. And I mean, among them includes, uh, yeah, some people who are, you know, semi-canonical uh, theologians or philosophers. Uh, Joseph Pieper shows up in the book, uh, in, in one chapter, uh, he's, a not particularly well known, um, but, a, a very lucid, uh, Catholic German philosopher in the, the post-World War II era. And he wrote this wonderful book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture, which I fully endorse. <laughs> um, the, and in, in there, you know, Pe in that chapter, Peeper is kind of a counter, point to Max Weber. Um, I'll just say like in my first book, the very first footnote was to Max Weber. Uh, and in this book, Weber is pretty important. Um, I, I cite him all over the place in the kind of subtle ways. Um, and yeah, I mean, Weber, I think he, he really does influence my thinking uh, because I think that his analysis of the Protestant ethic is still a really incisive diagnosis of our 21st century culture. I mean, he, he makes perfect sense of the moral approach that we take to work today. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm bouncing in this topic, Peeper and Weber off of each mm -hmm. other. Um, there's a, a, another chapter um, where I deal with three key thinkers. Uh, one is Leo the 13th, uh, the Pope who wrote the first Catholic social encyclical. Uh, there's Kathy Weeks, the Duke university uh, Marxist feminist philosopher, political philosopher. Uh, I take some inspiration from her. She's, she's kind of like the, the figurehead uh, and godmother of the anti-work movement. And uh, also Henry David Thoreau. Um, I, I think about Thoreau all the time. And, you know, if you only paid attention to Twitter, you would think that Thoreau was most famous for having lived in a cabin and had his mom uh, do his laundry. But um, he, there's more to him than that, shall we say. Uh, and... Yeah, I mean, I, I first read Walden uh, when I was preparing to teach a class on the the problem and, and the question of work. And um, I was 
I was stunned by how much this book is about work. It is, it's a, a really sharp critique of, uh, of the American work ethic. Uh, and, you know, Thoreau himself, you could say, is uh, an anti-work thinker. And mm. he wanted to challenge the notion that you gain dignity, character, and purpose through your labor. You know, he looked at these Irish laborers who were building the railroad that to this day runs right past uh, Walden Pond. And he says, you know, I wish that you could spend your time better than digging in this dirt. You know, he wishes that the world were arranged in such a way that we didn't depend on railroads so much and that we didn't need to, um, you know, build them at you know the lowest possible labor cost uh, and all of that because these laborers are, they're worth more than that. They have infinite potential just as any of us does. Uh, and the the working conditions that they endured were were destroying that potential. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're wondering what might be next for you in terms of your scholarship or your projects or really how you're thinking about vocation now and maybe, you know, future sort of aspirations, um, maybe even topics. Uh, certainly there's more to say about burnout, but I'm just wondering what your, um, what your next, next projects might be. Yeah. I mean, there are a few topics that are, kind of spin off of the book. Uh, I think there's, there's more to be said uh, about burnout and work more generally, you know, so something that is interesting uh, to me is the, you know, the history of the term burnout, which I, I deal with in the book, but there's a, some other kind of key words that came up uh, around the same time in the 1970s. Uh, there's, the idea of the professional managerial class. There's the idea of emotional labor. And these keywords have all been contested uh, in in the decades following. And I kind of want to think about what, what connections there might be among them. Um, mm. And, you know, in the, the, I'm, I'm in the bigger picture um, I, I I have already written uh, a couple of pieces that I see as related. Um, that you know, maybe just yeah, like a, a you know, if you didn't live in my head, you wouldn't see connection. <laughs> but a few years ago, I published a a, a piece in the Hedgehog Review about regrets, mm. and more recently, I published another piece in the Point magazine about uh trying to think my way into uh, my father's kind of final thoughts uh, in, you know, the last days and and ultimately the last hours of his life um, via this apparent selfie uh, that was taken from his deathbed. And Mm. in both of those, like the connection I see is trying to uh, put myself in an ethical relationship with a person who I have to kind of construct imaginatively. Um, and the more I think about it, the more I realize that this is true, you know, throughout so much of our, our ethical lives. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, one way that I, I, I so I want, there's more, I think I want to do about that. Um, you know, what I, I kind of the way I think about it is, you know, kind of like a twist on the the Joan Didion uh, quote. You know, we make up stories in order to live, um, or we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Uh, I, I think about, you know, we make up people in order to live with them. Um, that you know, the people we are in all in ethical relationship with are to a large extent, and I don't even think disturbingly large extent because I think that there's no alternative. But I think that they are largely inventions um we we create the people that we uh have relationship with Mm -hmm. so that's you know i mean ask me in a few years how that is going (laughs) (laughs) those are the things that are on my mind right now Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we like to ask all of our guests what advice they would give to young adults today 
you know, keeping in mind that the world is a mess, that it's very difficult to be a young adult in this messy world, maybe keeping in mind the context context of the pandemic. Um, but based on what you know, as someone who had a pretty deep sense of vocation, got his dream job, had reasons to leave the job, I don't know, what, what, can, what would you say now as advice to a young adult? Yeah, I've got, I think, four, four things. Uh, and I think that they're all things that young adults, particularly if they are studying or they have studied at, uh, you know, liberal arts colleges, uh, particularly ones, you know, that are, are religiously affiliated, they'll, they probably encountered this advice somewhere along the way. So the first thing is know thyself. <laughs> Uh, and that is, of course, so that that is a lifelong process. Uh, and, you know, yeah, I mean, we can talk about that in terms of vocational discernment, but just it's it's uh, it's just, yeah, discerning the self uh, ultimately um, and, and recognizing that that self, there are parts of it that are consistent. There are parts that will change. Um, the second is desire to improve. Um there's a, a really nice book that um, by a writer I, I greatly admire called, uh, uh, well, it's, the book is called Self-Improvement. Um, and, or no, it's called The Art of Self-Improvement. Uh, it's by Anna Katerina Schaffner. And she makes the case that self-improvement is the heart of human wisdom, that our wisdom traditions, be they in philosophy or theology or psychology or um, the movie Frozen, for instance, uh, all kind of boil down to different approaches of self-improvement. And that that is also a lifelong process. So it's know yourself and then never quite be satisfied um, with yourself as, as you currently are. You can always imagine, you know, a, a further, um, uh, you know, fur further, iterations of the self or, or further growth uh, and never, never to give up on that. Third is to recognize your solidarity with others, that the things that you do affect others and vice versa, and that your, your flourishing is tied up with others flourishing. Uh, when you are pursuing an education, you're not just doing it for your own good, but for the good of those around you. Uh, and, you know, hopefully uh, they are also, you know, pursuing your own good. Um, and finally, uh, is to have radical hope. Um, you know, you, Hannah, you mentioned that the, the world is uh, difficult and challenging and we can't know the future. We can't know what we take for granted now that will disappear uh, in, in the future. And this idea of radical hope, I borrow it from the philosopher Jonathan Lear in his wonderful book called Radical Hope. Um, it's about how to imagine a good life in a culture in which all of the assumptions about what constitute a good life no longer apply. And so mm -hmm. in the, the, the case study that, uh, that Lear does, he looks at uh, the crow of uh, the, the Western Plains. So you know, the crow are this Native American culture who were, you know, <laughs> like many, uh, pushed off of their land uh, in the late 19th century. And this crow chief named Plenty Koo had to figure out, well, what now? What do we do now? And uh, Lear outlines the mode of thinking that Plenty Coup undertook in order to imagine a new way of living for the crow. And uh, it, it entailed recovering old uh, cultural meanings uh, and forging new ones in order to see a continuity with the way of life that they had known, uh, you know, prior to their, their encounter um, with, uh, you know, the, the United States government. And it's, 
and we you know that 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 virtue of radical hope is is one that we always have to reimagine i mean you know on the on the small scale in our own lives you know we build everything on a job or a relationship or living in a specific place and then at some point we can't do that anymore and we have to rethink our way of living uh and yeah, I, I think that, you know, continually trying to rethink new ways of living um, is is imperative for for living a good life in a, a world where the future is never fully predictable. Mm. Thank you. That's some good advice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <Thanks. laughs> I, I try to take it myself. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> John Malesic, thank you so much. We've talked about uh, burnout, right, which is what the, the subject of your book, uh, but a lot of other things, too. And I did not foresee that we were going to end on the theme of radical hope. But thank you for that, too. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That was so interesting and so delightful mm-hmm. to talk to John Malesic mm-hmm. about his new book. And um, I just, I, I thought it was uh, so wide ranging the ways that the examples he's giving and the kinds of um, ideas that he's putting forward about work. I, I mean, when he starts off by talking about the ways that our work identities or the ways that we think about work end up not being formational, but sort of deforming mm-hmm. our character, feeling pointless in our work, mm-hmm. not finding meaning in our work. Um, I mean, that resonates with so many people. And I mean, we've all been there for at least, you know, a short while. Um, and I I just thought that that, that way of framing the problem um, and sort of identifying the symptoms and the gap between vocation and work and where burnout lies. Mm-hmm. This is really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things he's doing in this book is taking a category that we often think of as an individual level, sort of a pathology. Okay, you know, if you're, if you're mm-hmm. experiencing burnout or signs of it, you got to go, you have to go fix that, right? And so at one level, right. he's saying, no, there's, there's a culture of burnout there's something, there's an economic argument to this book. There's um, also a really nice, just larger history of um, our attitudes towards work. And I love how he can sort of take that scene, which it's not hard to imagine, of the protesters and then the cranky yeah. guy across the street waving his fist saying, you get a job, you know, to right. uh, <laughs> And, um, you know, it's like, okay, yes, I can picture that. And then to just kind of carefully say, like, what is that guy assuming about the protesters? What is he assuming about the value of work? What is he assuming that our society is about? Right. Just um, Mm -hmm. right. These things run really deep in our culture. Um, Yeah. 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 Uh, I also appreciated uh, this category of mission gaslighting. Yeah. Now that is something that, you know, we in NetView and in our sort of circles where we put a lot of emphasis, not just on vocation, but institutional mission, you know, for good reasons. This is something that we need to pay attention to, always want to sort of be going back to operating from. But, you know, John Malesic's work is in this larger culture and all these deforming ways, even something like mission gets used in abusive ways, right? To just mm-hmm. kind of um, require people to, you know, keep keep doing this unsustainable work. You know, keep, uh, he has this image of being on stilts in the book, right? Mm-hmm. Keep trying to operate mm-hmm. on these stilts that are getting further and further apart. So that's, yeah. that's something we need, to, we need to pay attention to. Yeah, and I, I think it's a reminder of the really, precious and beautiful pieces of mission and also of vocation mm-hmm. and what what sort of exploring you know the possibilities of vocation um and what it means to have a right to belong how we can reclaim dignity how we can reclaim what he was talking about at the end the sense of radical hope mm-hmm. about um our our work um our 
purpose in the world, our identities, our you know value to each other, and the way we can honor that in each other. And um, I think you know it was it was uh, a real gift to hear you know sort of the dangers um, uh, you know of getting to that precipice, and then also mm-hmm. um, coming back and and discovering that um, belonging and uh, and hope that he offered at the end. Mm-hmm. Callings is hosted by NetView, the network for vocation in undergraduate education, an association of over 250 colleges and universities in the U.S. and Canada. NetView is administered by the Council of Independent Colleges and is funded through member dues and generous support from Lilly Endowment, Inc. Your hosts were Hannah Schell and Aaron Van Lanningham, and the episode was mixed by Caleb Kennedy. You can find our library of podcasts at netview.buzzsprout.com. Additional resources can be found at NetView's blog, vocationmatters.org, and at the NetView program page at the Council of Independent Colleges website, www.cic.edu. Our music was composed by Dan Kennedy. Thank you for listening. Listeners to this episode may enjoy our conversation from season one with Darby Ray entitled Annual Trash Day or our interview with Jason Mon from season two entitled Neighbor Love.